Zane Busby has spent more than two decades helping Holocaust survivors in Eastern Europe meet basic needs for survival and dignity. Since the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February, the organization she founded, the Survivor Mitzvah Project, has been operating in overdrive. It's navigating the turmoil and destruction in Ukraine to maintain contact with survivors, get them even more critical aid, and in some cases provide them safe passage out of the country. In this special episode of Good People Talk, GPF Executive Director Naomi Eisenberger speaks with Zane about Survivor Mitzvah Project's work and impact during this international and humanitarian crisis and how GPF support is helping. Here's Zane and Naomi already in conversation. How did you come about to start the Survivor Mitzvah Project? Okay, well, I'm a television director, comedy director by trade. And right. in 2001, my mother actually read something about the return of Jews to Lithuania. It was the first Jewish Congress. She said, oh, you should go. You know, your grandmothers are from Belarus and Lithuania, and you should find their birthplaces, and you should go. So I went without any research or anything. And when I got to Lithuania, I realized I needed a visa to go to Belarus. So I was kind of stuck in Lithuania for four days, but it was a very happy accident because... I met a professor who said to me, you know, I know that you're going to cross the border in a couple of days and there's Holocaust survivors throughout Belarus and little tiny towns and villages. And if you wouldn't mind, would you bring them some food? And I said, okay, great. And they said, oh, and if you wouldn't mind, could you bring them some over-the-counter medications? I said, okay, I will. Oh, and if you wouldn't mind, can you go to the ATM and get as many 20s, 50s and $100 bills as possible? It was September uh, 2001. And the ground was already cold. And he said, you know, there's a lot of tourists coming through the, in the summer on route trips and things like that. But right now, these people have like nothing. So off I went. And when I crossed the border, it was like going back in time, really like 200 years, little shacks that looked to me like they were out of Fiddler on the Roof. And there were bullet holes in all the buildings and everything was just as if the war had happened yesterday. It was really a landscape from another dimension. And when I went to these little towns and villages, we would knock on the door of this list that I had of eight people in my hands and nothing. I went around back. And of course, I had a translator because I don't speak these languages. And I said to my to the professor, I said, well, well, I don't want to scare these people who haven't had a very good experience with strangers knocking on their doors. Um, what do I say? He says, just say, yell out Shalom Aleichem and everyone's going to relax. You'll see what happens. So I would yell out Shalom Aleichem, nothing. And I'd go around back and Every single one of them was on their hands and knees out back, digging up the ground to try to get some potatoes out before the ground froze. So then I would go Shalom Aleichem and they would run over and hug me and kiss me as if I was some long lost granddaughter. And we'd go inside and we'd have some tea and they'd start telling their stories. And I was just like, oh my God, I didn't know this existed. I thought all Holocaust survivors you know, were in the United States or Israel and they were all doing fine. And here they were living you know, without food. Their windows were broken. It was cold. They didn't have heat. And all these horrible things were happening to them. You know, I gave them the money that I had and the uh, supplies that I had. And when I got back, I thought, oh, this is a no brainer. I'll just go online, find the big Jewish charities, give them this list of people that I found, and then I'll donate to the charity. It's now, uh, what, almost 20 years later. It is 20 years later, my goodness. A lot of these people are still not getting any help or not getting the help they need. So the Survivor Mitzvah Project was born and it grew from eight people to 80 to 200 to 500 to 1,000 to 2,000. And we're, we're at 2,500 now and we're in nine countries now. 
So, and over the years I went back and back and back and we got more people and I started recording their stories and making friends. And I realized the most important thing to date with any of these people is to make a human connection. They would rather know that you have not forgotten them than have water. So that's a big part of the project. To date, and you know, the Good People Fund has been like a godsend to us. I mean, you've believed in us right at the beginning and we, we've managed, I just looked, we've managed since like 2006 to deliver I think it's $8 million in aid directly into people's hands. You know, they know what they need. You know, if I bought cheese and bread, maybe they're allergic to cheese. You know, it doesn't, a lot of well-meaning people give them goods when they don't really need the goods. They need the money to buy the medications that they need, not what I think they might need. So, um, and a lot of bigger organizations don't trust them with money, which is ridiculous. It's insulting. So, you know, we give them their dignity and we, we say, hey, we have you now. Don't be afraid. We're never going to let you go. You're not going to live like this anymore from this moment on. And we'll take care of you. How many people currently in the region? Well, we're so we're we're in the we're in Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. We're in Belarus, Moldova, Slovakia, Transnistria, Ukraine, and parts of Russia. Usually, if a survivor had a sibling there, we're not really in Russia, but we do support you know a handful of survivors there. There's about I would say about 850 really bad cases because people are very ill at the moment and not just the older ones. I mean, we have a lot of people like, for example, Ukraine right now we're helping. I think it's 348 elderly people in Ukraine. Let's fast forward now. Give us a sense of what you are actually doing now and give us kind of a bird's eye view of what you are hearing we go back and forth with letters, you know, and have for years and years, we have like 20,000 letters. And that's, that's, you know, every two weeks, someone gets a letter and someone gets a letter back. But the post office is closed. So the, uh, the phone is now really the only way. We have some boots on the ground who are in Ukraine proper. And they can tell us on the whole what's going on. But then our team is calling every single survivor to, to find out if they're okay. Because what's happening, which is really frightening, is wonderful organizations and people from all over the world have flooded the border countries that's you know uh, Hungary and Poland and uh, Moldova Transnistria with uh, humanitarian aid so for the people the millions now who are who have managed to get out there is hot food waiting there is you know clothing there is uh, relocation services and they're taken care of for the people who are inside Ukraine they're the ones who need the help the most and they're the ones that can't get it. For the Holocaust survivors, this triggers so much PTSD. Even the smell of gunpowder in the air, the sounds of the bombs going off, the hunger, the lack of water, the total disruption to everything, seeing people die. This triggers everything that they've known in their life. And the last time there was no one at the border, you know, waiting with hot soup, there was no one to help them. So, you know, for them, this is like, uh-oh, this is the beginning of another five years of hell, and will I survive at this time? So they're in bad shape emotionally. So just calling them is really a good thing because we, we found one woman in a bomb shelter. She's a, she wrote something very, very interesting. She said, well, first of all, as soon as she heard a friendly voice on the phone, my aid worker said to me, she became emotional, and she said, your call is as if I found a diamond. Wow. She said that, the, that this was torture and said that I was three years old when the war broke out and now I am 83. What a special treat this is at the end of life. Alas, what can we do? I am a grandmother and five times great grandmother, but now I suppose 
I will not die a natural death. We had some people in Kherson and called them, you know, early on in the conflict. And they said, it's quiet here. You know, once in a while we hear a distant bomb. One day later, she says, the Russians took our city. They're leveling everything we hold dear, bombing everything, schools, libraries, homes, theaters, churches, synagogues, places of our culture, bombing even our gardens. We're afraid to go to the one store still open because Russians are shooting at us. They're also firing into the windows of apartment buildings to kill us. And today I can't get in touch with her, you know. And these people are also immobile so that, you know, a lot of them can't get out, you know, without aid. So that's what we're working on now. We're trying to coordinate with, you know, there are some buses. Scary thing is like a lot of them are going to the Transnistria Moldova side, which, you know, could be next if if we believe Putin and he usually does what he says he's going to do. So they're going into a country that is not going to be a safe haven for very long. We have about nine people that we know of who got out. But the largest majority of the survivors we help are the sole survivors of their families. A lot of them never married. A lot of them never had children. And or a lot of them outlived their children. And so these, these are the ones that are alone who need someone to help them get on a bus, to collect their medication, to make sure they're okay. That They're, they're not going to, at 92, they're not going to start walking the bombings, you know, the streets that are being bombed. So that that's another uh, consideration. And that's what we're really focused on now. We were lucky because as soon as this conflict started and, and we heard that, you know, there were maneuvers for practice, you know, military maneuvers on the near the borders in Belarus, especially, we sent aid. We sent like we doubled and tripled up on aid and we started sending aid over there immediately. So by the time the invasion happened and for days thereafter, when everything was still working pretty much as a country, we were able to get them stockpiles of the medications and the food that they needed. But that that's going to run out. I mean, the supplies are running out everywhere. This is a group of people who the likelihood, uh, the chances of their getting out are probably not great. Not, not good. I'm assuming that you're not aware of any efforts directed specifically to survivors. No, I'm not. And that's like, it's a shame because what else is going on is, I mean, now in the news, people are seeing what Moldova looks like on the ground and what Ukraine looks like on the ground. And they're seeing parts of the world, which is not usually in our consciousness when we don't, as Americans thinking about Ukraine, Transnistria and Moldova. But these people are from the Holocaust in the East. They say that this bombardment of Kiev and the places where they lived is to them the most frightening experience because they never thought they'd see it again. And here it is again. This woman wrote, she says, she's taking, he's taking shelter in a hospital with his sister. He says it's dangerous where they are, but they can't go home because the roads are also dangerous. So he's in the hospital, which gets shelled and bombed with his sister, who's just recovering from cancer surgery. And he thanked us so much just for the phone call because he felt so alone. You know, the the feeling of being alone through this is something terrible. So we're, we're just trying as much as possible to keep tabs on them to try to get buses to them if they can get out and to try to organize that. We could certainly use the help in that. These are not, we don't have 500 people in Kiev. We, we have people strung out all across the country, sometimes one or two people in a town, the last Jewish person in that town. So it's not like we can go to one place and evacuate everyone. You know, we have pockets where there are 30 people or 40 people, but most of it is one and two people all across the country. We got one survivor out the other day who went with her daughter to Israel, but she had a daughter, you know? She went with her daughter. So her daughter you know, took her through the whole process. If you're alone, there's just no chance you can get out. 
the other day when you and I spoke, you mentioned that we're in an, a terribly emergent situation right now, but you also alluded to what comes next and the challenges that will come. It's a dark view, but it's a pretty realistic view is that when, when you bomb places to smithereens, and I mean, some of these towns are going to be just gravel soon, you know, nothing, every building destroyed, when it's just like that, and that goes on and on and on until a country is basically raised to the ground, like what happened in um, Syria, and you take their culture away from them by bombing their museums and artifacts and churches and synagogues and everything else. So they're not coming back. The ones that are gone, they're not coming back. The future there is not good unless something drastically changes. The people of the world want to help each other. They want peace. They, they are flooding you know, these countries. You know, what can I do? How can I help? I mean, that's a beautiful, fantastic thing. And it reminds me of, I once asked one of our survivors and she was born in 1910. Right. So I asked her, I said, okay. I said, so you've lived through the czar, you know, you've lived through uh, the Russian revolution. You've lived through communism and socialism. You've lived through Nazism. You've lived through the Fuhrer. You've lived through Stalinization and you've lived through democracy. So what's the best? When was it the best? She says, it makes no difference as long as there's no war, because we just want to live. We want to raise our children and get educated and laugh and love and sing songs, just like everyone else on earth. A survivor once told me, she said her mother told her that in crisis, there's always people who will help go towards those people. And I always think about this, you know, it's like the struggle between good and evil in the world. When I go to a small, small, tiny village, I mean, I'm talking maybe one street and there's 20 huts on the street. So they all, you know, and and it's been that way for hundreds of years. So this is a, a group maybe in Ukraine that, you know, they all come from the same educational background or lack of education. They all are farmers. You know, they all come from the same parish or no parish, you know, so they all have the same background for sure. So, and then you talk to them and in, in house number one, they hid a Jewish girl in their attic for three years. In house number two, that was the head Nazi gendarme who was the, in charge of the mass killings in that area. And house number three, you know, they, they had like a halfway house in their barn for like Jewish boys who were on the run. You know, in house number four, you know, they killed Jews. And you, you just wonder, why is it in some places they were good and in three feet away, they were evil. And when I ask, they always say, we did it because it was the right thing to do. So I think the right thing to do is something that we're witnessing now, which is very, very positive. And we're up against a big force of evil that we have to continue to do the right thing because that's what the world runs on. We have to help people. I just want to thank you, first of all, for, for making that trip many years ago and coming back. Amazing. And, um, Amazing yeah. what can happen in your life when, when you know, you just, you know. Yes, I have not forgotten that you're being a comedy writer for Golden Girls. Director. Um, yeah, was a, a whole lot different than what you're doing right now. Um, Much different. Zane, one last question. I always like to leave people with some kind of action that they can do. Mm-hmm. What do you think and what do you suggest for people who want to do something tangible other than giving money? What do you see as, as a good response? Right. Well, donating is always helpful because the world works on money and that's how we get things done. But there's so many, the important thing is if you're moved by the situation to do something, that could be call your congressman, call your senator, say, are are there funds allocated for Holocaust survivors? You know, can you do anything about this and helping them get out of Ukraine? Spread the word. 
that we're trying to help Holocaust survivors. Go on social media, just send something out, a little blurb out to your friends and family. There's always something to do, but the important thing is to do something. Do something. You know, it doesn't, if you can't write a check, if you can't donate, there's still so many things you could do. You could talk to people. You could uh, elevate their awareness. Thank you for your time. I will remain in touch with you to, you know, get updates. I want to thank you and the Good People Fund, because not only do you help so many incredible groups, and I love your work, but you were there for us and you continue to be there for us. Your your involvement in what we do is just precious and it makes it keep going. You are what we are all about and what we are here for. And so I thank you for that. And we will be in touch. Mm -hmm.